Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for the wickedness is come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. That's one of the favorite Bible accounts amongst children that we know of, isn't it? They love that. They love to talk about Jonah. They love to hear about how he prepared such an amazing fish. They like to hear about, as the account unfolds, how the Lord sent a great storm to disrupt that ship. And eventually, they love to hear about how he was thrown overboard and the great fish swallowed him up. And for three days, Jonah was in the belly of that fish. Well, there's a lot of excitement and drama that goes along with that account, isn't there? However, as we grow and we learn to look beyond the action and the adventure of what happened in the life of Jonah as he interacted with that great fish, we learn a few other things, don't we? Our attention as we grow older is turned to some other things in in this account that we can learn and that we make application to our lives today. We learn that there's power in the preaching of God's Word. We also learn that repentance is sometimes very temporary. After all, it was just a few generations until Assyria, Nineveh, was destroyed by God. We learn it is impossible to escape the knowledge of God. We become acquainted with God's power that He has authority over everything, and that includes governments and nature. Perhaps one of the greatest lessons is that God is greater than any one person's own country. As we learn what Jonah learned, I want us to make some application into our own lives. Again, as we often say, it doesn't matter what happened to Jonah if we can't make application into our own lives today. But the first thing I want us to notice, and and we simply just have two points in tonight's sermon, Jonah learned about the revolutionary power of preaching. Revolutionary means constituting or bringing about a major or a fundamental change. If a fundamental change is going to take place in the life of anyone or any nation, it must be brought about as one lives in a manner consistent with his beliefs. We might say, in other words, we must practice what we preach. That's what brings about fundamental change. We might say one thing and yet do another. Have we ever heard a politician get up before a crowd of people and talk about how much he loves this great nation and then take action that is obviously detrimental to its existence? Well, we don't believe what he or she says when that happens, do we? We understand that they are saying one thing and doing another. That's why fundamental change is hard to cause to happen. But if fundamental change is going to happen, we need to Live what we preach. But why is it that preaching is so powerful? Well, Paul said it's the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16. It is within the words of God's message where we learn how to and access salvation. 
so that we can live eternally with our Lord. It's the obligation of every single Christian who lives in this earth to understand this message, to digest it within their minds and their bodies so that they can repeat that to other people and teach and preach to the lost. What is one of the greatest things that hurts gospel preaching? I think it is sometimes we do not practice what we preach. I think that is a fundamental problem in our efforts to reach the lost. Jonah was having a hard time living what he was preaching in Nineveh, wasn't he? He went and preached a sermon of repentance, but didn't want it to happen. He wasn't doing what he was teaching. We call people like that hypocrites, don't we? That's hypocritical to say one thing yet do another. Notice what Christ said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. He said, Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, the beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite. First cast out the beam out of thine own eye. Then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. I believe that, and I know you do too. But that is by far one of the most abused passages in all of the Bible. Many will use this to convince us that if we do not agree with anything and everything that we are judging... Because we simply disagree with a lifestyle or a practice or something that's being taught that we are judging. And we remember what the Lord said, judge not that you be not judged. Someone may not know any of the Bible verses that the Lord has left for us to know, but they can recite those few words. Judge not that you be not judged. What they do not realize is when they make a statement like that, they're judging. They're making a judgment. But you know, we have to make judgments. What did Jesus mean when He said those words? He put them in there. They have to mean something. And if it doesn't mean that we just have to go along with everything that comes along, or we're judging, then what does it mean? It's not enough to say, well, it means this or that. Let's look at the passage. and Let's try to understand exactly what it means. Jesus was talking about Righteous judgment. He said the judgment that you use will be used against you. So if we're going to use unrighteous judgment, we're not going to fare very well. If we use a righteous judgment, then that's what will happen to us. He later said, Matthew seven twenty four, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Now either we have a conflict in what's being said or judge not that you be not judged talks about a very specific kind of judging. Well, we know the Lord did not contradict Himself. So He tells us in Matthew chapter 7, the first five verses, don't judge according to an unrighteous judgment. For the way that you judge, that's how you will be judged. 
And then he moves on down to verse 24 and he says, don't judge just according to the appearance of something. Use a righteous judgment. We better be judging. We better incorporate trying to determine if something is good or if it is not good. We have to judge situations. Do I want to be a part of a certain situation? Well, I have to make that judgment to see if I need to be a part of that. Because there are many situations that exist in the world today that the Lord says, do not participate in that. I have to look at something and say, do I want to be a part of that? That looks like something the Lord wants me to do. I have to make the judgment on what's being taught in the world in a religious sense. I have to judge that according to what though? He says, what measure you meet, the way in which you judge, well, what's my canon? What's my yardstick, so to speak? I have to judge according to what this Bible says. That's a judgment. But that's a righteous judgment. And that's what he's talking about. We must judge whether the individuals with whom I associate on a social level, if they are good for me, or if they might corrupt my good manners. 1 Corinthians 15.33 I have to say, is that person living the life that God would have them to live? Because if they're not, I do not need to engage them on a social level. That doesn't mean I ignore them. I don't use the advantage of knowing them and being friendly with them on some level to be able to take the gospel to them. But I can't interact with them and fellowship with them when they are living in such a way that God does not support that. Jonah went into Nineveh and he preached a message from God, but he didn't want that to happen. He preached the message of repentance. He brought the message directly from the mouth of God. But he didn't want them to repent. See, what we have to understand is when we say one thing and do another, that hurts those who are receiving the message. They cannot trust the messenger when that is the case. Jonah learned that he had to live what he preached. You have to live what you preach. Jonah learned that. We need to learn that. But he learned something else as we look at this idea of revolutionary preaching. He learned that leaving God does not help. Leaving God does not help. Why did Jonah disobey God? Have you ever thought about that? As I read this passage of Scripture, it kept coming into my mind, why did Jonah want to disobey God? There has to be something there. After all, Jonah, who I believe is the writer of this history, didn't hide anything. That's why when I read this, I feel like Jonah repented of the sins that was in his life. He didn't try to hide the things that he did. He just simply recounted what happened. But why was it that Jonah chose to go in the opposite direction he had been told to go? Why did he hate the people of Nineveh so greatly? Well, was he a petty bigot prejudiced against the people of Nineveh? Well, as we read the account of Jonah, it becomes clear that God had used him for some time as a prophet. And so, I believe that fact points away from any kind of racial prejudice on Jonah's part. And then when we get over into the book a little further, Jonah 1, verses 7 through 16, and that's where the pagan sailors come together. 
doesn't Jonah show great compassion upon them? I don't think Jonah was a prejudiced bigot. Maybe Jonah fled from fear of Nineveh. Maybe he was afraid. He didn't want to go down into that great city. Maybe he had heard about the things that was going on down there and, and it scared him a little bit. Well, when we read Jonah 1.15, we see that he was brave enough to have himself thrown overboard in the midst of a great storm. Jonah doesn't strike me as someone who is easily scared. He was brave enough to subject himself to poverty and hunger when he became angry at God for sparing Nineveh. Jonah just doesn't strike me as someone that was scared. Well, maybe he was selfish for prestige and he wanted to be in the limelight a little more than that city of Nineveh would allow for him to be. But you know, when you flee from God and His nation, doesn't that mean you're removing yourself from the greatest place of limelight where you can be placed? King Jeroboam's court at that time. Notice what it was what is said about Jeroboam in 2 Kings 14, 27. And the Lord said, Not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. And after all, when he did get to Nineveh, after he had preached his sermon, did he not seclude himself away from the limelight instead of reveling in the success of his preaching? <clears throat> I don't think any of those things are the reasons that Jonah left and did not go to Nineveh of his own accord. I believe that Jonah did not obey God because he loved his nation, because he was patriotic. Jonah was a patriot. He knew it was God's intention for Assyria to destroy Israel because of their disobedience. The last thing I believe Jonah wanted to see was this great city Nineveh spared. And by the way, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. Notice how Jonah camouflaged his hatred of Nineveh and praise toward God. Jonah 4 verse 2. He said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. He wanted Nineveh to be destroyed so Israel could be saved. Patriotism is a helpful mechanism. It is helpful when it causes the people of a nation to unite together under one cause to obey the laws of that nation and to build relationships with other people as long as they do not contradict God's laws. When we look back over the history of Nineveh, Nineveh was one of the greatest persecutors of Israel that had ever been. History tells us that the Ninevites punished and tortured and treated extremely inhumanely the people of Israel. They would cut unborn children from the mother's stomach and hang that child around her neck. They wanted Israel to be destroyed and Jonah was a patriot. Jonah did not want them to live. We need to learn from the lessons Jonah learned and 
in our concerns and in our beliefs regarding government has to always take a back seat to God. We have to, I believe, as, as good citizens that we would want to participate in the process of government. We do not have to. We can't bind that upon anyone. This isn't a, a political sermon in any way. But we have to understand that we can hold beliefs, but those beliefs cannot contradict God's laws. I've known people that were members of particular organizations that stood upon and embraced every single thing that God stood against. And it's as if they put that before God. Jonah learned the revolutionary power of preaching. But then he also learned something else. This is our second point. He learned what his responsibility was toward God. Instead of being consumed with his earthly citizenship, I think that Jonah should, been, should have been more concerned with his spiritual citizenship and his obedience to God. Notice what Paul told the Philippian brethren. Philippians 3.20 He said, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul used the word, uses the word conversation here. And the word that he spoke, that we translate conversation, carries with it the idea of citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven, according to Paul. People who obey the gospel are united under one government, and that's Christ's rule. doesn't make any difference what, what country we're native to or where our physical citizenship lies. We are united under one government. And that's Christ's spiritual government. He's ruling today from the right hand of the Father on high. He's leading and lording over His kingdom. And it doesn't matter if we're American citizens, if we are from Mexico, China, Indonesia, India, Russia, Israel. It doesn't make any difference. We can be from every nation under God. Isn't that exactly what happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. It makes the statement that men from every nation under God were present and it gives a list of them. And out of all of those men, out of that semblance of every person upon earth, the church was created. Spiritual citizenship trumps physical citizenship. Prior to the statement that Paul made, notice Philippians 1.27 he said, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. See, Jonah had yet to learn that his lifestyle had to become or let it become as if he were a follower of God. How can our citizenship have the proper reflection upon the gospel? Well, we've already talked about it. We practice what we preach, right? We live what we believe. We endorse the things that Jesus endorses and we stand against the things that Jesus stands against. If a Christian will support the beliefs or ideals of anything that God rejects, then we're supporting the wrong things. We're not practicing what we preach. We know what God hates, don't we? God hates things. And as followers of God, we better learn to hate those same things. They need to be repugnant to us. We, they need to make us sick when we 
Think about them. Notice what the wise man said, Proverbs 6, 16-19. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination unto Him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. That's pretty straightforward and clear, isn't it? We get over to the New Testament and we read the letters of Paul and he wrote a letter to the Roman church. The church that was established in Rome. And he told them about some things that was going on in their midst. He told them about some things that God caused to just give the people over. And he tells us why that is. Notice what he says in Romans 1, 26-31. He said, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind, to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness. Now notice this list. Fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable and unmerciful. But see, he didn't just stop there. He didn't just say those who participate in those things are worthy of death. He does say that. But he didn't stop there. Notice the last verse of that chapter, verse 32. Who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death. But not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. When we do not stand against... We are for. Jesus said that, didn't He? We have to support Him. If we do not support Him, then we are against Him. If we do not stand against the sins of this world, then we are standing for them. If we are ever in a position to be able to affect a situation, to make something illegal that is sinful before God, we better do it. If we have an opportunity to cast a ballot that says abortion will be illegal in this United States of America, we better do that as Christians. We have to stand against what God stands against. We have to stand for what God stands for. If we just simply ignore it, then we fall into the category of Romans 1.32. Again, we're not talking, this isn't political speech, this is God's truths. We have to do what God has asked us to do. If we support sinful activities, then we're just as guilty as those who participate in them. We can never give our allegiance to something that stands against God. We can never give our allegiance to an organization that would move heaven and earth to make something that He hates common practice. What about the things going on in our nation today. There are a lot of things happening that make us sick to think about. 
the protesting in the street, the marching on the Capitol or any other city where people want to protest making abortion illegal. They want to call it, I've noticed a trend over the years that we want to change terms to make them more palatable, right? We really don't want to even use the word abortion anymore, at least our nation doesn't, the world in general. They prefer to use the term reproductive rights. Well, everybody's for that, right? Everybody's for reproductive rights. Planned Parenthood? Well, everybody's for planning to be a good parent, aren't we? But see, that's not what those terms mean. That's not what they're teaching. That's not what they indicate. We're talking about murder. See, it's a whole lot easier to say reproductive rights than it is to say abortion. It's easier to say abortion than it is to say murder. The shedding of innocent blood. It's easier to call something a fetus than it is to call it a child. An unborn child. Then we think about homosexuality rampant in this nation. It's a whole lot easier to call something a choice. That's my personal choice than to call it an abomination before God. And, and people who stand for and promote things like that, they want to change the focus from doing what God wants us to do to calling those who stand for God as, uh, hateful. We're hateful. We're, fo- we're filled with hate. We hate those people. We don't. Christians don't hate anybody. One sin is no worse than another sin. They all keep us out of heaven. Some sins carry with them greater consequences in this world. Some sins may cause us to be a little nauseated at our stomachs more so than others. Some may be more cruel than others, but all sins will keep us out of heaven. We don't hate any sinner. We hate the sin. God hates things. We see happening, see it happening all around us. Solomon said this, Proverbs 14.34, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach unto any people. We can pledge allegiance to our country, but not if it makes laws that debilitates carrying out God's laws. Jonah learned obedience to God. But he also learned what God's objective was. The prophets of old were concerned with government stability only as it related to their spiritual health. They warned the Jews to repent. They warned them to serve God faithfully or else they would be taken into captivity. They wanted to have a stable government only as it related to their spiritual health. And as we read the book of Amos, we see that's a perfect example of the conditional nature of promises and punishments. Amos spoke of the destruction and the scattering that was to be done in Israel, particularly in in anticipation of the captivity of northern Israel by the Assyrian nation. Amos 9, 1-10. And the prophets had a very clear objective, didn't they? Preaching repentance. Preaching repentance. If Israel had listened to Amos and later on Hosea, they would have never gone into captivity. They would have never been punished by Nineveh. And so we we bring our attention back to Jonah and his mission was to take a, a, a message of repentance into Nineveh. Those very people who would later on 
destroy Israel. But God's objective remains the same even until today. He wants to bring a message of repentance and has sent one so that we can be saved and spared from hell. And that's our objective. Or at least it ought to be, right? To save ourselves, to save our families, and to save as many people as we can along the way. Let's think about this idea of national allegiance. What would it mean, morally speaking, in today's world, for a person to be Americanized? Have you ever thought about that? Could we count on someone who had been Americanized to stand against abortion? To stand against homosexuality? To stand against the sin of socialism? Could we expect that to happen? Our country, like Israel, I believe, is being called to repentance. All nations are being called to repentance. I don't think that's happening in some kind of a miraculous way. We're being called to repentance. I believe that our nation has been given a short reprieve. And as citizens, I hope we take advantage of that. But as Christians, it doesn't matter. We can be faithful Christians under any kind of a regime whether it's a democratic type regime, whether it's a republic, whether it's a dictatorship, whether it's totalitarianism, whether it's any other kind of regime, we can be faithful Christians and it doesn't matter. We should be concerned with governmental stability as it affects our spiritual lives. I want our nation to be stable so we can continue to meet like we're meeting right now. Now obviously... I want our nation to be stable and to be safe because I have children in this world just like the rest of you do. But our primary concern needs to be national stability in relationship to our spiritual health. See, our objective is to find that city whose builder and maker is God, Hebrews 11 verse 10, and to take as many people with us as we can. That cannot be done if our allegiance is not to God. And our national allegiance comes second. This world is not our home and neither is this country. Neither is this nation. Now I enjoy living here. I am thankful to God that I was born a United States citizen. I appreciate living in this country. I appreciate the rights that come with being an American citizen. I appreciate the advances in technology and health care and all of the other things that we can think of, I appreciate that so much. I've been to some of the other nations of this world that do not enjoy the prosperity that we enjoy, and I do not wish to be a part of that country. But they can be Christians just the same as we can, and that's what they're doing. Well, we cannot participate in things that our nation does that is immoral. We can't do it. We must practice what we preach and stand firmly against sin. I'm a patriot. I am a full supporter of the United States of America. I'm proud to be a citizen here. But I will not support any law that stands in contradiction to God's laws, ideals, and His commitments. Paul warned that we cannot take part in, we cannot support those sins that exist in the world today. He specifically points that out. Or we too will be punished. Jonah was a patriot. But he had to learn some things if he was going to be pleasing to God. 
He learned about the revolutionary power of preaching. He learned what his responsibility to God was. And all of those things fit together. And we need to learn those same things today. We need to take away from Jonah and learn from the mistakes that he made. We understand that preaching is powerful. It's powerful because it is God's message and we're called, each of us individually, by the message of the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. Not by faint whisper in the night. We're called by the gospel message. We answer the call by believing that Jesus is who He said He was, Hebrews 11 verse 6. We repent of our past sins, Acts 2.38. We make the great confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And Paul says, we confess unto salvation, Romans 10 verse 10. That means there's something else. We're immersed in water. We have our sins washed away as we're buried with Christ in baptism. And it saves us, Mark 16.16. And then finally, living a faithful lifestyle until our time on earth is over. And that's exactly how we get to heaven. That's God's blueprint, isn't it? Now, he had a blueprint. He sent Jonah with a blueprint and a message. A little bit different from that one. But it was the same concept. Faith through obedience. And they, they obeyed. God stayed His punishment. From the, from the highest office in the nation, the king, all the way down to the lowest servant. They sat in, they sat in sackcloth and ashes and they repented. Now, it didn't last long. A few generations later, God destroyed them. But see, we have the opportunity today to be faithful to Him. Whether through initial obedience that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and doing those things that He said for us to do, or, for, for, or whether we might have to come back to Him. Maybe we've become unfaithful. And we confess those faults, we repent of those things, ask God to forgive us. And if you need to do that, we'll pray with you and for you. But if you have need to answer this Lord's invitation tonight, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.